opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. No, it shouldn't. Um, welcome to Tuesday Topics. I'm Paul Edwards, and it is my pleasure to welcome most of our crew. Uh, Mr. Rick Morin is not with us this evening. He's not feeling as well as he might be, so we wish him a speedy recovery. However, my co-host, Mr. Brian Charlson, is here. Hello, Mr. Brian. Hello there, Paul. Good evening to you and to all the ships at sea. That's right. Mm. Oh, and Walter and Winchell. Our, yeah. Hand razor extraordinaire, Miss Marianne. How are you, my dear? I'm well, Paul. How about yourself? It's good to be here, right. as usual. I am well as well. And, of course, our streamer, who was uh, part of the streaming extravaganza that was Braille Matters last week, Mr. Larry, how are you, sir? I am well. I'm well. I also edited it and put it up for podcast, and I enjoyed listening to the little sections that I missed. It was mm-hmm. well done. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. We we would we on Tuesday topics would encourage everybody to listen to that and um, think about it. And um, yeah, I think that'll be fun. So tonight we are going to do something. Um, that I've wanted to do for a long time, and and uh, and I'll I'll tell you where it, where the idea for it came from, um, and then we'll get into it. Um, one of the things that I've started to do uh, over the past two or three years is to write uh, an article um, for our White Cane Bulletin, which comes out six times a year, which is our Florida newsletter. <clears throat> and so it used to be called Mumbles from Miami and is now called Jottings from Jacksonville. <laughs> and um I had gotten to the end of the of the of the series that I had written and needed to write a, a whole bunch more. And so I decided it would be kind of fun to do a whole series, a whole year's series on kind of a history of blindness and blind services and education and um, library services and, and all of those things in the state of Florida um, over the next year in articles that will come out in the White King Bulletin. <clears throat> and then I started thinking, you know, there's an awful lot of stuff that um, that that came into my head when I was putting some of those things together. And I've written the first, well, I guess the first five articles, the first two I've already sent in, but, I, but I've written five of the six, and the only one that's left is the one that's on the future, um, which, which I want to think about a little bit more before I write. But it, it occurred to me that what's true of Florida is actually true of other parts of the country, and we've gone through an extraordinary history uh, in in terms of blindness and the rights of people who are blind. <clears throat> and I'm not sure that we spend enough time talking about it or or understanding just how important and and I think how exciting uh, some of this stuff is. So that's where it all came from, and. 
I would argue, um, and I'll, I'll I'll see what Mr. Bryan thinks after the, the the following sentence, that blind people, more than any other single group in this country, were responsible for awakening civil rights in this country. Would you agree with that, Brian? Civil rights writ large? Yes. Make your make your argument. <clears throat> I, I, I can't say yay or nay. I want to hear how you justify such a statement. Well, if if we if we look at virtually any other minority um, that that was in involved in the civil rights movement, and we go back as far as the 19th century, what we find is, for the most part, uh, those minorities um, very much being unable to speak for themselves, and also. Um, also having no one who is prepared very much to speak for them. If, if we ignore the, the few years of reconstruction, um, where, where, where black folks had some opportunities at self-government and we ignore, cause I, cause I think we, we have to, the abortive efforts of, of people like Ms. Anthony to, uh, to create a, a women's rights movement that meant very much in the 19th century. <clears throat> and and we ignore uh, the degree to which virtually every immigrant in this country at various times in the 19th and 20th century has been persona non grata and had no rights whatsoever. We, we then are left with situation where if we start to look at some of the progress that was made, particularly by self-help groups of blind people in the Midwest in the 1870s and 1880s, and then combinations of groups such as uh, workers for the blind and blind people working in the 1890s, 1900s, and 1910s, and then the formation of the American Foundation for the Blind, I would argue that there was advocacy going on for people who were blind and specific changes that were being made um, in, in, in the rights and, and, and abilities that blind people had available to them that, um, that, that put us substantially ahead of most of the other groups that have traditionally been a part of civil rights. So there. So let, let's let's again. I'm going to query you a couple of times because sure you make you started out with a bold statement. So not only do you have to explain why, but you have to explain some of the terminology that you're using and how you're defining it. How would you define civil rights? <clears throat> well, I, I am I am defining civil rights. Um, as uh, I individuals um, who are recognized as as having some uh, in, in inalienable rights um, uh, in terms of being involved in and included in society um, 
And and please understand, I'm not suggesting that um, that blind people even now are fully included in society, or that um, or that say integration as an idea in terms of blindness is a is a meaningful um, exer- exercise to be involved with. But what I am suggesting is that uh, is that blind people long before most others had a notion of the fact that they were a unique group and that as a unique group, um, they had the capacity to create some expectations for themselves. And I'm suggesting that that happened for blind people long before it did for most other groups. So let's, how would you benchmark um, what civil rights blind people gained at what time in our history? What's the first civil right we were successful at getting? Um, well, I, I, I suppose that I probably made a mistake in talking <clears throat> specifically about civil rights because I think I think the I think the the real point that I'm trying to make probably. Uh, more accurately is to say that blind people were more active and and those who work with blind people were more active <clears throat> at recognizing that there that there were some things that, uh, <clears throat> that they were able to do if they were given the opportunity to do them and that and that as a result um, they they went forward and um, and asked for and almost demanded, not alone, and we'll talk about that in a minute, um, opportunities um, to uh, to receive services. So let's let's go back to the very beginning. <clears throat> a lot of the Midwest organizations and later the American Association of Workers for the Blind actually worked. Um, to create opportunities for blind people that for the most part didn't exist for other individuals with disabilities. They encouraged blind people to assume management positions. Um, They enabled blind people um, to to, uh, uh, to, uh, they encouraged some blind people anyway to, to attend college when that for the most part wasn't possible for many other folks with disabilities for a variety of reasons. Um, there wasn't a huge movement before the 1970s and 1980s for for folks who were quadriplegic or paraplegic to, to actually get society changed so that a lot of them could start to attend universities. And I'm not saying that none of them did, but I am saying that as a proportion, blind people had had a larger involvement in in colleges and universities before other disability groups did. Um, I think as well, um, along with Lions Clubs, there was a real effort, particularly after the American Foundation for the Blind was formed, 
to create organizations at the state level, Florida being a good example, um, that provided specific services to blind people <laughs> long before there were services available to other disability groups. In particular, the Lions Clubs were immensely responsible, along with the American Foundation for the Blind, for mobilizing Helen Keller to go all over the country to try to sell the creation of, uh, of blindness components in state government. And in many states, they were extremely successful. The same thing applies to white cane laws. It was lions, not blind people, who created white cane laws. But nevertheless, these were the very first laws that specifically created a, an expectation that at least some blind people um, had an interest in wandering around uh, their communities um, by themselves and that society had an obligation to develop rules that enabled them to do that. Randolph Shepard. That was enacted in, in 1936. That was a huge. Yes, yes it was. <clears throat> but if you think about it, it was a long time before there was anything resembling curb cuts and a long time before there was any expectation that that folks in, in wheelchairs or other folks with disabilities were actually going to do any of those things. So, Mr. Bryan, are you still uncomfortable with my statements? Uh, well, I, one thing the audience needs to know is that your degree is in what? In history. Thank you very much. So I'm not going to challenge your understanding of history in any debate anytime soon. I would, say, I would say, though, that you said civil rights and now you've amended your statement. And it becomes more uh, justifiable, as you've amended your statement, as saying that we, as a disability group, organized earlier than, if not all, at least most other disabilities, that uh, our government recognized our needs as unique. <clears throat> well before cross disability ever appeared on the on the screen uh, well, well i would say we, yeah well before I would say, go ahead yeah, well go ahead. before well before well, well before what i was going to say is um not only well before cross disability stuff but but well before um well before really and any minority was looking for um, special treatment and 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 um, and recognition. Um, blind people had it, and we're going to talk about three or four, three or four more things in a minute that move us even further ahead. But by the end of the 1930s, we we had the creation of a federal system um, that allowed for uh, the operation of Randolph Shepard bending stands. We had a situation where, and that was only for blind people. Let's be clear. Right. We had a we had a situation where 
um, a, a system had been set up where initially Braille books and then talking books were being made available to blind people, not to any other group initially. And third, by the time the 1930s were over, um, we had a situation where national industries for the blind had been created, and and that afforded an opportunity for blindness-specific entities to be created that that allowed for a range of jobs for people who are blind. Now, whatever you think of sheltered workshops, it's a hell of a lot more than was available to any other disability group at the time. I would agree with you that this concept of uh, grouping people uh, played an important part in what we did. I, I've always been of the opinion that the number one reason why blindness issues became prominent before issues of other disabilities is that there were a lot of men blinded in the trenches of World War I. There were a lot of men who were badly injured, but they tended not to survive their injuries in the numbers that blinded uh, soldiers survived their unique sure. injury. And, um, and, and you're correct. The initial Rehab Act was <clears throat> passed in 1919, 1920, um, it, but, but it, didn't, it, it, it didn't do a thing, truly, um, for, for blind people for quite a while. Uh, however, there were special blindness-related vet hospitals established that were mm -hmm. not only established to serve the medical needs of those individuals as they that was most that was mostly after the second world war rather than the first oh, one. i understand i understand i understand. there was one established in england that became kind of the model for later and that was saint dunstan's yes but but i don't think there were a that, lot of uh, <clears throat> unless i'm mistaken i don't think there were a lot of 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 blindness rehab programs um after the first world war Again, it was through strictly Veterans Administration or the equivalent thereof yep. that they did these things. And <clears throat> keeping in mind, they didn't have to build a single building to establish such things. Unlike other disabilities, specifically physical disabilities, which required either significant modification of existing spaces or uh, new standards for minimum uh, design to assure that they would have access to spaces in general. Uh, so, so, so you're I, suggesting that, that, the, that the primary reason that blind people got ahead was because we didn't need ramps? I think that that had a significant part in the process uh i would also and, and I, that's there's nothing wrong with that that's not you know i'm not uh painting that as a uh oh well of course we got things started faster than other people after all they didn't have to put in a ramp for us uh, i get you I, I i think though that you have to acknowledge that there is more than just gumption of blind people that 
created the situation where our needs got started before the general public. Right now, if you're in Boston, in Massachusetts, you may travel all public transportation free of charge at any hour of the day or night. If you are a quadriplegic, yes, you're a disabled person. Yes, there's needs for disability-related services. However, they have to pay a percentage of the fare level at the hour that they're being transported. We have uh, uh, laws that's, that's surprises that allow- me. How did how did how did people with um, physical disabilities allow that to happen it it preceded it's not it was a matter of them catching up rather than we got it and they didn't they were playing the catch-up game uh for these kinds of things uh also i get a five hundred dollar credit off of my tax house uh property tax bill as a result of being a blind person, not yeah. a disabled person, a blind person. Yeah, and, and, and we're going to talk some more about that in a minute, Brian. But you get because... the idea that that some of this stuff. And and why why is that, Brian? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> Again, I don't think that people were very much involved with the idea of blindness as a event in their community until war brought it home to roost i i I don't i don't disagree with that um i don't disagree with that anyway um we're we're at the first stopping point in my list so we're we are just before 1940 and of course, 1940 is the next significant event that we're going to talk about um, in a huge amount of detail. And then we're going to talk about the next 20 years and 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 what happened as a result of what happened in 1940. But I think we actually have some hands up, do we not, Miss Marianne? We do. We most certainly do. We have Jane. Jane. Hold on. Jane, um, Jane, walk my body, Jane. Oh, my. Remember that Kingston Trio song about Jane, Brian? I don't. I'm not sure where she went. Um, And there were three hands up, and now there's just one. So, um, 626 area code? That's Mitch Pomerantz, I'll bet. It, it um, certainly is. Good <laughs> afternoon, good evening. Mr. Pomerantz. Yeah. Um, and Brian and I, I didn't come in quite at the beginning. I was, I was dealing with our management company, but um, Eric Bridges, several years ago, um, put together an outstanding uh, history of the white cane. And uh, now that I've been actively involved in our local Lions Club for a decade plus, 
on two different occasions right around uh, White Cane Day. I have I have read that along with some additions that I made. But I would say, and maybe you covered this, but I would say that the issue with other disabilities is other than folks who survived polio, there really weren't people with paraplegia or quadriplegia. They didn't survive accidents. They didn't survive World War One, and I I would take Paul's position here that um, that because of AAWB and and some of the the uh, local organizations of blind people, right. um, we did get a head start, and I think back to the founding of the California Council of the Blind in 1934, um, that what happened uh, was that uh, the organization had been the California Council for the Blind. It had been run by sighted social workers and folks who ran agencies for the blind here in California. And at the uh, at a at a meeting in '34, which was really turned turned out to be the organization meeting, uh, the blind people basically rebelled and said, yep. "We're we're not going to allow you to tell us how to live our lives." And so, you know, and you you'll, I may be stealing your thunder, Paul, when you talk about 1940, <laughs> but but folks like Newell Perry, <laughs> yep. you know, folks like Newell Perry were were at the forefront of of that movement and so um i i think we did have a leg up because we were much more numerous than folks with physical disabilities were at that time and and you'll get into to what happened uh, you know after or during and after world war 2 but i will, I will always remember I will always remember the uh, when the independent movement, living movement, got started here in California in the, in the late '60s and, and early '70s. Uh, how they, and particularly Ed Roberts, who I knew personally, um, basically said the disability rights movement didn't exist before independent living, and a lot of us said you don't know your history and you really ought and, to learn it well before and, before you start preaching to us about and, advocacy and, and organizing and the sad thing is Mitch at least as far as I'm concerned is we have not done a good job of 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 making sure that history books get rewritten the books that are being used to teach this stuff, all essentially buy into what Ed Roberts said, and and you it are, is disgusting. Are, you are sadly uh, very accurate in in that assessment, but that goes into, you know, and and you will probably talk about this later. I assume. Um, I I I really think that that. Our generation, you and I and Brian are yes. essentially the same ages. I think our generation uh, that that succeeded the, the generation that founded the Federation and, and the yeah. and ACB later, 
I think our generation was at the the pinnacle of advocacy efforts, and I yes. and I hate to say it because I don't want to you know I don't want to be that old man on the lawn saying you don't do things the way we did, but I think the last couple of generations of blind people have gotten have gotten soft. Things yes. perhaps have become a little too easy, and therefore advocacy ain't what it used to be. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, I think as, as we move further through the history, you know, one of the questions that we really need to ask ourselves is to what degree did the splitting of the two organizations actually cause us to lose the huge leg up that we had before? And, and was that perhaps the most crucial reason um, why we allowed other people to get ahead of us? Yeah, I'm, that's it's an interesting question. Obviously, um, it didn't it didn't help um, no. the organizations, but you know, based on uh, as as you know, um, I cut my advocacy eye teeth in the federation until sure. we got kicked out in the late seventies. Yeah, and and I, you know, the 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 propaganda was. Well, the people who, who left NFB and joined ACB, they were agency folks who weren't quite as strident in their advocacy yeah. efforts. Well, I, I don't know whether that, that's really the case or not. You know, 40 years in ACB, I have a little different perspective. But, but what, right. I, what, I will, what I will say is that, uh, you know, the old, the old expression, a house divided, cannot stand and and it, right. it certainly didn't help to have two organizations i remember doing when i first started going to to ledge seminars acb in the 80s uh, i i heard on more than one occasion from a a congressional staffer well that other organization was just here two here. weeks ago and i have a totally different perspective so which is exactly. it why can't you guys exactly. agree yeah. exactly Yep, and, and and we'll we'll talk some more about that, but it, but I think what we probably need to do, what we probably need to recognize, and we'll come back and talk about some of that, <clears throat> is how much we accomplished in the twenty years before we left. Oh, we accomplished tremendous amount. We, yes, from nineteen. We accomplished to more in those twenty years than probably ever than than we and, have and, since. And and that's one of the reasons why. I would suggest to everybody that 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 the splitting of our two organizations was a much more seminal event than we give it credit for. Both both groups are anxious to try to indicate how wonderful they are by themselves, but the truth is, when 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 we separated, we we, we lost an immense amount of our power, and it's a shame. <clears throat> I think it's a it's a valid point. Yep. All right, so. Mitch, well, I'll be listening. Stick, stick around if you like. Raise your hand if you've, got, if you've got other stuff. <clears throat> we're, we're, we're going to, in, in the next segment, and if you want to hang out, hang out as a, as a, with us, you're welcome to. But because we're going to, the next section is to talk about those 20 years between 40 and 60 and some of the, some of the things that, um, that we were able to do. <clears throat> I'll I'll definitely so, uh, stay and listen and raise my hand later on at, a, at an appropriate time. Very good, sir.
All right. All right. <clears throat> Miss Marianne, we got anybody else? <clears throat> yeah. Jane must have had to drop off because she was did have her hand raised and now she's lowered it again. Um, she uh -huh. was allowed to talk. So if she is here, she could she can just unmute and that's all for uh -huh. hands. Miss Jane, we'll give you a shot. I, when I put her in the search box, I don't find her. So she must have had to oh, drop okay. off for a moment. Very good. Anybody else? Nope. You're clear okay. for now. Oh, Stacy uh, Smith just raised her raised her hand. Stacy, hey. Second. Oh, Hold on, Paul. Well, now she lowered it. She's been popping it up and down. Um, so I'm not sure if she really wants to talk. If you want to talk, Stacy, you need to raise your hand so I can. So um, let's talk a little bit about what I think is, is the next seminal event. Um, hands up again. Um, we'll try once more for, for Ms. Smith. Is it Smith? Is that what it is? Yep, Stacy Smith. You can unmute, Stacy. Um, I, I don't know what to do. All right. No. So <clears throat> she's in, got permission in, to talk. So in nineteen forty, um, an organization called the National Federation of the Blind was started. And at the same time, um, the National or the American Foundation for the Blind um, had entered into a long-term contract with uh, Helen Culler. Many state agencies uh, were, were starting for people who were blind. And... By 1941, when the United States went to war, we found ourselves in a situation where, uh, as Brian says, bunches of blind people were coming home, and we actually set up <clears throat> three or four different entities who were suddenly trying to deal with blind people and developing uh, a set of <clears throat> training approaches um, that would, in fact, shape what um, services to blind people would look like uh, over the next few years. But what was probably most significant about the formation of the National Federation of the Blind, and and truth, truthfully, um, with regard to what Mitch was talking about with the California Council of the Blind as well, for the first time, uh, a group of people with disabilities was suggesting that uh, it was no longer appropriate for folks in the service industry uh, to tell them what they wanted to do, how they wanted to live, or to make rules for them. <clears throat> if we look at a lot of the material, 
that was distributed before the founding of the National Federation of the Blind, one of the things that's significant is um, we were almost always spoken of as the blind, as a almost a pejorative statement. And um, many of the the books that were actually written and used to discuss how blind people should be trained and dealt with were immensely and categorically uh, obnoxious um, in, in that they had notions of what blind people were and what they were not that had very little to do with reality and had an awful lot to do with what sighted people thought blind people ought to be capable of doing. Once you get blind people together in an organization able to talk with each other and able to communicate effectively and appropriately about who they are and what they want to do and what some of their objectives and needs are, <clears throat> the values that operate are suddenly entirely different. And one of the things that happened um, almost immediately uh, with the formation of the, the Federation uh, was blind people began to uh, look at areas where they were interacting, and particularly after the Second World War ended, there was a huge movement on the part of the National Federation of the Blind to become active both at the state level and in Washington, D.C., to try to substantially alter uh, the way that society treated blind people and the rights that blind people had. It was the National Federation of the Blind that, uh, that went and persuaded the federal government uh, to actually alter its income tax laws so that there was an extra deduction for folks who were blind. The same thing happened at state level. The the what you were talking about, Brian, the extra five hundred dollars that you get for property taxes was very much developed as a result of actions taken by the Federation, which of course included ACB then and and the Lions Clubs working together. And I think one of the things we need to recognize is our hugest allies in all of the work that we were doing in the 1930s and 40s and 50s were Lions Clubs. Um, and I, I am one of those folks who is very sad, um, and, and I, I suspect Mitch will disagree with this, but who's very sad about where Lions Clubs have gone because I think they've lost sight of what their interests really ought to be. And I wish there was a way that we could once more make them the champions of blind people rather than the champions of preventing blindness or, or uh, other things. They're not nearly as involved as they used to be um, in day-to-day -day interaction with people who are blind. And I think that's really sad because we as blind people owe Lions Clubs an awful lot um, in terms <clears throat> in terms of what they did virtually in every state the white cane laws that were passed were passed 
not because blind people had the ability to be effective uh, legislative interactors because they didn't at that at the point when when white cane laws were passed it was lions clubs who did that and virtually uh, all of the states where specialized services for blind people um, came to be set up were set up as a result of the joint action of Lions Clubs who took the lead at the local level. And Helen Keller and the American Foundation for the Blind, who took the lead um, at the national level. And they actually kind of had a dog and pony show that they would send from state to state. The first time that Helen Keller came to Florida was 1929. Um, and unfortunately, it was, it was the wrong time for her to arrive, but she actually got a law passed, which created a very strange-looking little organization that was supposed to provide services to blind people. Um, oddly enough, it looked exactly like the commissions for the blind that the NFB later decided they wanted in state after state, um, but it went nowhere. Um, the law was passed, but it, it really never got set up and no money was ever spent and it was essentially repealed in 1935. It wasn't until 1939, 1940, in 1940 in fact when Helen Keller came back to Florida when the real Division of Blind Services here was set up. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it, it is fascinating um, and I'm going to shut up in a second and um, see if, if Brian or other people would like to add some more and then maybe perhaps open open up this section. But it's, it's it was fascinating the degree to which um, blind people um, over the, the 40s and 50s began to take control more and more of, um, of, of what they believed ought to be available to them. One of the one of the biggest changes that blind people made was was to create the special treatment that blind people have with regard to social security disability. To this day, um, that remains. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that people who are blind are actually able to earn twice as much as uh, other people with disabilities are, much to the chagrin of people with other disabilities, by the way. But that's because at least for a while, it was possible for folks who were blind to persuade people uh, at the national level that it does cost money to be blind and that it, it, it is no longer appropriate to, um, to, to regard every disability as having um, uh, equal expenses um, in terms of judging when the cliff ought to happen for Social Security disability. So, Brian, any comments? There's several things that I've, I've got come to mind. Um, one is I became a lion here in uh, Watertown, Newton area, Massachusetts, because I was so tired of hearing people refer to the lions as champions of the blind. Mm 
um, when 99% of the money they raised in the name of the blind went to blindness prevention as opposed to any involvement in trying to improve the lives of those who all, were already blind. And I was successful in my club to get them to think about donating to places like the Perkins School for the Blind and the Carroll Center for the Blind, a Mass Association for the Blind, uh, and others, <clears throat> in addition to what monies they put toward uh, uh, medical research in the area of blindness. So I'm no longer a member of that chapter because lionism is struggling with uh, significant losses in membership here in the United States. But to set that aside, one of the curiosities for me is how blindness got stuck in the medical model, unlike other disabilities. I, go ahead. Well, First, tell me exactly what you mean by that, because I, I, I have an answer, but um, and, and it may not be a very palatable one, but I have one. Oh, give me an answer. I think that I think that um, I think blindness stayed in the medical model for as long as it did, because it was to the benefit of blind people and organizations for the blind um, to have the medical model continue um, because it was far easier to raise money and to get what people wanted if the medical model was being applied. Not only because people are scared to death of blindness per se, but but I think there's also this huge this 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 huge pity that operates for blind people who are perceived in the medical model and who are sold as being part of the medical model, which transcends any uh, any notion uh, that 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 these are people who are interested in 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 moving forward, and and I would argue, in fact, that. One of the decisions that we made in the in the in the blindness consumer movement was essentially a decision to decide that we were no longer going to accept the medical model. And once we did that, we lost a lot of the goodwill uh, that the rest of society had for us. Again, um, I'm conflicted. Uh, on things. I know that um, if I were in an accident that caused me to be blind, that um, I would not get access uh, as a uh, as a means of compensating for my blindness things. While if I were uh, paralyzed, uh, I would certainly have cover it covered 
durable medical equipment like wheelchairs and the like. Um, and it, it quite honestly uh, begs the question for me, um, is it but a matter the, of the dollars that That's still the medical model, though, isn't it? Sure it is. Absolutely it is. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, so I'm, I'm suggest I, my question, you may remember, was how did the medical model get involved in our lives to the degree it was? And right now, what, one of the advocacy things that we're promoting is to be able to have low vision people have access to uh, magnification TVs, right, equipment. Right. Okay. Okay. And we're not getting very far along that road. Uh, we have to advocate for it uh, because the laws are written in such a way that uh, Medicaid, Medicare won't pay for anything that has a lens. Blindness, vision loss is somehow or other treated more poorly than other disabling if you will conditions well um, partial vision is is total blindness let's ask ourselves that question what about sure. the fact that what about the fact that um, people with vision loss whether it's total or not are don't have access to the same kinds of rehab that people in you talk about um, being in an accident and let's say you're blinded in an accident um, one person in the car is blinded in an accident and the person the other person loses the ability to use their limbs or needs physical therapy that person the person needing physical therapy will get that physical therapy the person with blindness um, is going to wait for a state agency to have time to rehab them so yes i think total blindness falls a little bit into that category of not being treated as well yep i i think i think i would argue that that the the, the whole issue is <clears throat> people who who go blind need need an, an entirely different kind of rehabilitation than anybody else does um and that that rehabilitation and and it's, a, it's another whole subject and is is best provided either by agencies who specialize in providing those services uh or by or by local entities that do um but there is all kinds of evidence that suggests mm -hmm. that in states where there are not separate agencies um blind people don't get the degree of training that makes them as effective um as as they would in 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 states where there are separate agencies yeah. and and what that suggests is it seems to me that what we what we need to recognize is that is that the rehabilitation model that needs to be applied to people who are blind or low vision is so fundamentally different from that that applies to anybody else um that um that it it really needs to have a, a, an entirely different set of rules i would argue for example that a person who is blind will never reach a point 
where they have had all the orientation mobility training they will ever need. Would you agree, agree with that, Brian? Yeah. I, I, and I think the same thing applies to uh, training in the use of technologies sure. that mitigate aspects of blindness. But my and, point was more about the immediacy of needing something. Yeah, yeah. no, I get I, I get your point, and I think it's right. <clears throat> but I think that, but I think that um, that that one of the things that um, that I would encourage organizations like ACB to be thinking about and NFB as well is is whether we need to actually push for a model that says that um, the one thing we should not be doing is trying to work for short-term goals which whose I immediate objective is to get a case closed because that person is now mm -hmm. supposedly quote right. rehabilitated because it 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 doesn't apply to people who are blind and never will that's correct i i agree with that yep <clears throat> so in this 20 year period between yes. 1940 and 1960 Mm -hmm. um, entities were created to um, rehabilitate blind people, uh, whether they were blinded, uh, what's the word they use, adventitiously blinded, or uh, were born that way. Yep. Um, that there had preceded those government entities a lot of not-for-profits that provided similar, not the same, similar services. Um, and because uh, of that mishmash, of government and private engagement, um, it, it it in and of itself created some interesting dynamics. Now, well, you talked about civil rights to begin this whole conversation. Uh -huh. Now, to me, a, a civil right is I should have the right to vote. That's my right as a citizen, and it cannot should not be abridged because of my disability. Uh, the I civil rights have a right of six, to a public but, education. Sure, but the Civil Rights the Civil Rights Act at 64 did nothing to give anybody the right to vote. No, that's uh, the Voting Rights Act that dealt with that. Agreed. It is. But, yes. but, but my perception of civil right is that I as a mem as a citizen of this political entity, I'm going to stick with the federal at this point. Uh, should have the same rights as any other citizen uh, <clears throat> of this entity, and that includes the right to vote. That includes the right to a public education. Uh, 
Where else that, that, does it that include includes in? being able to get into buildings? It includes being able to um, it it includes being able to access transportation. All of those things are are things that a, a citizen ought to have the right to do. So I, I mean, I don't disagree with with much of what you're saying, <clears throat> but and I would argue that that in lots of respects, in in a variety of ways. Um, those were things that were happening for blind people before they happened for others. Let's let's take education as an example. First, let's talk about <clears throat> one of the other really significant uh, changes that happened. Prior to 1945, most children who were who were blind or uh, who were born blind, tended to be born blind um, as as part of lower classes. It obviously wasn't always the case. And lots of kids, lots of kids um, went blind uh, because of accidents and other stuff who were from different classes. But something happened in 1945 that fundamentally altered the, 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 the way that things operated in that. For the first time, premature babies were being saved, and the only price they had to pay for being saved was that they were blind. But where did those premature babies come from? They sure as heck didn't come from lower classes because those kids weren't having their babies in hospitals for the most part, weren't getting expert treatment. They were, in fact... Um, that it was in fact the upper class babies who were getting retrolentral fibroplasia. And it was therefore the upper class parents who suddenly got involved with looking at the services that were available for their kids. In studies that have been released about education, to take just one example, 75% of folks who were blind had already been mainstreamed by the time that uh, idea was passed in 1976. And, and the point of all that is that, that that happened essentially because the parents of these RLF kids took the lead in creating situations that, that, that enabled their kids to be educated. And I think that, it's it's not only in those areas of education, but it also applies as we get further and further along in the period to rehabilitation and to other entities. One of the things that's significant in Florida is long before the Division of Blind Services was set up in Florida, and by the way, it was initially called the Florida Council for the Blind in, in 1940. But when long before it was set up, we actually had two um, two lighthouses, um, one in uh, one in Miami and one in Tampa, and and all the way through um, state after state, Massachusetts, another good example, Brian, where where in other uh, in other entities there 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 really weren't wasn't a combination of state entity and uh, private sector service delivery. 
but in the blindness situation there was um and 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 i think that's one of the one of the other developments that actually created the kind of strength of services that operated and the advantage that blind people i think had uh between 1940 and 1960. agree with all that mr bride i have no problem with any of the above yeah <clears throat> i was Gosh. blinded in 1967 as a 11-year-old mm -hmm. uh, middle to, to upper lower class blue collar type family and uh, from day one i was educated uh, in the same school as my brothers and sisters were and for that matter my parents before before us so yeah i i i, I get that kind of thing um i would say that the way the whole process uh, applied was very very inconsistent across the nation sure um that it continues to be very inconsistent across the nation sure uh the laws only require that the student get an adequate education not that they get whatever it takes for them to achieve their uh best potential thing getting c's is good enough for having to do extra effort on their behalf in order to allow them to get A's is not required. Well, uh, we we haven't we haven't talked about it, but we should probably put into the system the fact that it was probably from the 1940s through oh perhaps 1980 that that we had another entity that was actually uh reaching its high watermark and that was the school for the blind um i i i think that there were a number of schools for the blind in in this country who between who after the second world war um developed uh curricula that was effective developed uh intervention and training for people who were blind that was effective um and and in many respects at least according to many people, um, provided a better opportunity for appropriate education um, than mainstreaming did. Um, who, who the heck knows whether, whether in fact, which, which was the best? I'm not sure. Um, and, and I think it depends an awful lot on, on where you were educated, how you feel about which, which of the approaches was most was most effective but i think the point that that needs to be made once more is there was a recognition that special educational opportunities needed to be developed for people who were blind and those were developed in a mainstreaming environment often 
but they were also developed very appropriately and very effectively in schools for the blind. And so in, in lots of respects, blind people had the best of both worlds. Wherever they went before 1980, they had a pretty good a pretty good expectation that they would get an effective and an appropriate education that would in, that would in fact probably um, probably make them more capable than most other kids with disabilities would be likely to be. Hmm. I'm I'm reminded of Judy Human's discussion about going to school as yes uh, a kid who used a wheelchair yep and the hurdles that she and her parents had to deal with in order to get her into a classroom right uh, and, and lots of and lots of blind parents had to deal with the same thing absolutely but, but, but the fact is that I, that that um that those parents and those kids um, in, in, in fact, got access to a range of things. Um, and we haven't talked about some other things. I mean, that was also the high point of camps for the blind that were all over this country, where kids for the first time got often to meet other blind kids um, and got an opportunity to interact with them as kids sometimes got the first opportunity to get to know lots of blind adults as well. Uh, it, it, I mean, it, it, to me, it was, it was a fascinating period. We went from being isolated and segregated to a place where, um, to, to a place where for the first time, partly because I think of the Federation, partly because of, uh, RLF, um, Partly because of uh, of AFB and a lot of the a lot of the the programs that were emerging as a result of AFB, but we got to a place where there really was an expectation that that blindness uh, was was something that was no longer a bad thing. It was it was a characteristic, and that for the first time. Other blind people, I think, were perceived as folks who it was okay for your kids to know. You know, as we talk here about blindness in the U.S. of A., there was a point in time where our society decided that uh, providing compensatory skill training uh, and other benefits to those who are blind um, was something that should be provided by government as opposed to families. That doesn't describe most of the world. Most cultures see blindness as something that the family deals with not government when did we switch as a society from expectations being family versus government 
I'm not sure we were ever at a place where where the family was responsible, and I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure that that any other of the development cult or the developed countries were ever in that place either. I think the difference is we decided that government needed to be involved, whereas other countries have, for the most part, um, felt like the way to deliver those services until very recently has uh, has been the responsibility of charity so um <clears throat> in in places like um european countries and and in and in canada in australia in the uk services were delivered by charitable groups much more than they were by uh by by state and national government and and it's really been relatively recently that um that governments have been been kind of drawn kicking and screaming um into the business of service delivery and i think it's also arguable that there are a lot of charities um in those countries who actually resent the degree to which um their preponderance and their primacy in in terms of being in charge of developing and and determining the kinds of services that ought to happen um is being taken away by government involvement but but i don't i don't know i don't know you that do i not know think of, that in the united states in our history that it was we were ever a society whose expectation was that if you had a blind member of your family that is a family responsibility I didn't feel that way. I, I feel that no, no, feels... Well, you haven't been there for since 200 plus years. Oh, I don't I, think I, in our I, lifetime it was the case. But at some point, we went from a nation uh, made up primarily of European uh, <laughs> Europeans who came to this uh, continent uh, searching for a better life in one form or another. Uh, and if you were a blind person, what was the expectation of you as a blind person in that society? Uh, and, you know, after People will even today say, well, government keeps growing and growing and growing well beyond um, the expectations of the founders. Uh, but I'm, I'm just curious whether, Paul, you have a feel for when we went to the direction of an expectation that government had a role to play. <clears throat> I think I, I think pretty early on um, there are there are three things that led to it. Um, one was that very early on we created an entity called the American Printing House for the Blind, and that entity was was actually operated under the auspices of the federal government with federal dollars, with the expectation that those dollars could be spent 
in institutions that were located throughout the country, mostly blind schools. And since those places were the only place that money was going, for a, a lot of the blind kids in the various states where these schools for the blind existed ended up gravitating towards them. <clears throat> I think that I think that the other the other the other reasons that we ended up becoming much more government oriented are exactly what you suggested, and that is um, the end of World War One and the end of World War Two, when suddenly there were just huge numbers of disabled individuals who suddenly arrived in the system and needed to be dealt with. And I, I, I really do believe that there was a, a tipping point to where we expected government to do more than it had ever done before for a number yes. of citizens, not the least of which were veterans. Right. Um, um, and again, we we survived this this thing called the depression, uh, where work was. was Work was created by government, funded by government to provide employment. So there were well, a whole, but, but whole not, bunch of but not only like that, mm-hmm. but not only that, but but it, it the, the other thing that happened during the depression, particularly during um, during Franklin Roosevelt's period, was we recognized that we in fact could use employment. Uh, to do things that we otherwise wouldn't be able to afford to do. Um, so we, we, there was this huge uh, outpouring of, of folks who produced theater, of folks who uh, wrote plays, of authors who were actually hired by the WPA. But in terms of blind people, there was a huge transcription program that was run by the WPA. And and when when we were growing up, certainly when I was growing up, I saw lots and lots of single copies of books written by people like Rex Stout, for example, in grade one and a half Braille, um, that that had never been done for the Library of Congress, had never been done in presses. They were done by these Red Cross ladies working for the WPA in the 1930s, and. And for the first time, um, our, our government got involved even in literacy for the blind. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you entirely that there was a morphing from 100% expectation that family and or uh, charitable entities will provide for the poor right. little ones. Uh, to moving on to a uh, government has right. proven itself capable of doing incredibly important and um, well, and 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 I think that was largely because of the AFB model and the and the and the Helen Keller field trips, um, you know, and and you know, clearly we talked about the war, but but I think that there was. Um, with with all of this, these Helen Keller trips all over the country, and with all of the work of of AFP, um, one of the objectives that 
that um, that folks that folks had uh, was was to was to force the state, not just not just the feds, but the state, to actually create uh, an area within that state that would be responsible uh, for people who are blind. And if you look at um, the way that a lot of these entities were set up. They weren't just set up to provide services. They they were also set up, for example, to to actually do what they could to prevent blindness. So blindness prevention was built in to a lot of the uh, the early um, agencies serving the blind. Certainly, that was the case in Florida. One of the things that I find interesting about how all of this uh, was molded um, was in rehab, the definition of success was employment. Now, you said that a lot of agencies, the, the definition of success is closing a case. And certainly that has been true in the past 20 to 40 years in that in that range um but uh, that re rehab was never modern rehab at least has always been employment based and we see this growing number of people who are not of employment age um who are now blind and the system is not functioning in a way that is appropriate for older blind people. So when we talk about those who are blind, the demographic has so radically changed from the 40s to uh, 2020 plus. Uh, I, yeah, I think that I think that's right. And, 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 and sure. So, so when we talk about the um, the whole issue of the development of services for the blind, um, we've also had to deal with the independent living movement uh, because you know it's not that you can grow a bigger pie. Sometimes it's how you're going to divide the pie. So funding is seen in the aggregate for services for people with disabilities. So we have to do more in terms of advocates for funding for programs specifically for those who are blind or visually impaired. Your agency there in Florida is part of a bigger agency. Is that not true? It is not. It's a standalone agency. It is. Reporting directly to where? <clears throat> reporting to the same agency as Voc Rehab reports to. So it reports to the Department of Education. Department of Education. And here in Massachusetts, we have a separate agency. But we've seen a decline of separate agencies over we the have. past 20 years anyway. And uh, I consolidation into general separate. Less than half the states are separate now, I think. Yep. Uh, yes. So that's one area that I would suggest we've had. Uh, we've There's been a backslide. 
Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. gained have been lost. Yep. Um, I think the same thing is true for education, um, partly because of a lack of financial support for the field of blindness getting teachers trained, getting rehab specialists trained. Paying them accordingly. And paying them accordingly. Exactly. The truth is, the truth is there, there, there are two service deliverers out there in the, in the field of disability. One of them, are all of the folks who are specifically trained in blindness specific skills and and the others um, are those individuals who are trained um, as uh, occupational therapists um, whose expectation is to make more money and who have set it up so that they can be paid by a much broader range of folks um, then can then can pay blindness specific folks, and so as a result, <clears throat> there is not a lot of encouragement or or really a, a lot of justification for persuading people to go into the business of blindness specific training because they're going to make less money and there are fewer jobs. Yep. And so, so it's kind of a scary situation. It is. It is. Do we have any hands raised? I I feel like Mitch we, has we his do. hand up, and Stacy has her hand up. So, okay. and Stacy, you have permission to. Stacy, see if we can do this, Miss Smith. I think I was seeing Mitch's hand coming up it again was. too. Stacy? Yep. Mitch, you're still able to talk. Work out, Stacy. Mitch, you still have the ability to unmute. Mitch. Oh, I, there you go. There uh, God, Paul, I've got so many comments to make, but the first thing I'll say is please do a program on mainstreaming. Um, I probably am in the minority, but I think mainstreaming has helped the public become more accepting of people with disabilities while at the same time it has hurt blind people educationally. Yeah. And I can go into great detail, but I do not disagree with you about Lyons. Um, I will not mention his name, but back in the nineties, I think it was during your administration. There was a board Mm -hmm. member. You're chuckling, you know where I'm going. Uh, Uh, We had a board member who was very active in Lions, and he brought to one of our conventions an international director. And his presentation, his speech, was one of the most condescending, patronizing um, speeches I'd ever heard. And I walked out of the convention hall swearing I would never, ever, ever join Lions. And I didn't for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But you are right. Uh, Lions have gotten away internationally from uh, being champions of the blind. Um, In our local club, however, we are taking steps to change that with our local white cane, our our club white cane fund. I've just rewritten the bylaw that uh, expands the function of our white cane fund to not just providing uh, funding for surgery to help people with cataracts and such, but we are also going to, um, and we have to, Pasadena Unified School District and the community college here, uh, blind and visually impaired students who need technology, both low and high tech equipment in order to continue their educational activities. So right. we are, uh, at least as a local club, and I think uh, as I'm involved with ACB Lions, um, I, I think a number of members in their local Lions clubs are doing much to try and get their, their local clubs to become more involved with with uh, blindness and, and, and I want to talk about breaking up, Mitch. Um, all right. Well, let's see there if I go. can move. That's that, a little bit is this better? That's yes. much better. Okay. Yep. Yes. Okay. Um, I think one of the reasons why the medical model has been hard for us to shake is that, um, as, and you touched on it, that the demographics of blindness are changing. Um, we have far more um, people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s who are losing their vision. And those folks have either decided they don't want to work anymore, they can't work anymore, or you know they just want to flat retire. So the medical model is more, I use finger quotes, appropriate for persons who all they want to do is to learn some basic skills but not re-enter the workforce. Now, are you you really saying that blind people themselves um, choose to accept the medical model Rather than rather than suggesting that it is imposed on them, I I think it it is it is both. Uh, I think if you're seventy years old and you're you've lost enough vision, you can no longer drive. Yep. Uh, the first thing you're going to hear from your physician, from your doctor, your ophthalmologist is. Uh, there's nothing more I can do for you. Your sure. your macular degeneration has proceeded to the point where, you know, we we can't do much, and uh, uh, that physician, that ophthalmologist, may or may not refer someone to to a, uh, an agency right. that provides services. But the fact of the matter is that if if 10% of of older blind people get any kind of appropriate training, that's a lot. Uh, here in the Los Angeles area, we have 
primarily two agencies, both of whom do a horrific job, in my view, of training blind people regardless of age. They're, they're just, you know, the, the difference between what, what's available in Northern California and what's available down here is the difference between night and day. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really unfortunate, but um, maybe 10% of older blind people get, get the, get appropriate training. And, and I think that's, that would be, <laughs> that may be a, a, an exaggeration. The, yeah, the other, I, I, I don't think we disagree. And I, by the way, I don't think I disagree that, that the medical model is what older blind people want to have applied to themselves. I, I think you're correct. But so go ahead. Oops. We lose them all together. Look at how look at how and I when I when I was doing disability awareness training, when I was doing windmills training, we talked about this. Think of how you thought about blind people when you could see. You had all the stereotypes and misconceptions about blind, and now you're blind. Yep. Are you going to change all of a sudden and decide, hey, I'm cool, I can go to work, I can, I can, I can do all the things I did as a sighted person? Not on your life, you can't. You, right, you, you and, don't. And, and our agencies, you know, with, I mean, the NFB centers <clears throat> would claim they're teaching people to adjust to blindness, but I'm not sure they are either. Well, that's... <laughs> You know, uh, it's, and how many people do they serve a year? Maybe a couple of hundred. So, so even if they do the numbers, the numbers are tiny. The the other thing I want to, I want to say, by the way, um, you talk, you mentioned CMS, um, and, and CMS not providing lenses. The other thing CMS doesn't do, and I didn't know this until just before I retired, we used to do a disability expo. And I got to talking to uh, to somebody who was there as a, as an exhibitor, and they told me that CMS will pay for a wheelchair if it's an inside wheelchair. They won't yes. pay for for a wheelchair that someone can use to go shopping or go to their wherever they want to go. So CMS has restrictions there too. But but I also want to comment on your your point, Brian, about families. You guys have done a whole lot more traveling than Donna and I have, but but we've done some, and and you know I've also had exposure to to other cultures that live here and live in other places. For the most part, we should all thank our stars yes. that we are not <laughs> we we our families are not the ones who are helping us uh, get get training or rehabilitation services because in lots of other cultures blind people are still kept closed in are still not um, allowed to get out and live their lives i will never forget and granted it was 50 years ago but i'm not sure that things have changed a whole lot when i was doing a radio program here in la one of my co-workers said you need to talk to my uncle she was Japanese-American. 
she said, you need to talk to my uncle. He's a professor at UCLA, and, and he's, really, he's really cool people, and, and you guys will get along and, and have a lot to agree on. So, so she gives me his phone number, and I give him a call. And I said, uh, Dr. Uh, Sakamoto, um, my name is Mitch Pomerantz. Your, your niece uh, works in my office, and she thought it would be a good idea for me to call you and for us to chat. And he said, Mr. Pomerantz, I know who you are. I listen to your program, and I don't agree with anything you talk about on your advocacy program. Wow. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> Um, there are still there are still cultures in 2023 that it's it's an embarrassment to them that they have a blind family member. So I am I, I, I'm not sure. I I think it's a great idea for the government to do all of this. As I've gotten older, I've gotten more conservative, but but I'm also not sure. <laughs> I am sure that 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 relying on the family um, to take the lead is such a good idea either. No, I absolutely believe that that one extreme or the other is, is filled with problems. Certainly, an exclusively family has responsibility uh, scenario has. I, I I can think of a lot more stories where people have been disadvantaged as a result of that than improved as a result of that. But I also. Absolutely think that part of the mindset in our society is uh, government takes care of blind people. I was standing in front of the state agency here one afternoon, and I was waiting for uh, my ride to pick me up. And this panhandler came over and asked for money. Um, and I said, no, I'm not going to give you money. I will treat you to a meal. There's a restaurant just around the corner here. So no, no, just money. And I said, nope, sorry, <laughs> ain't, ain't going to do it. He says, you don't understand. You get benefits. And he's yelling this at me <laughs> as he's running down the street. So even at that level of, um, social awareness there is a belief in our society that government is taking care of those poor unfortunates for the yeah most i'd agree part. with that yeah, yeah i i would agree with that and, and i don't think that's healthy of, either some of it you know you were talking too about about charitable organizations and of course uh, a lot of those charities want to want to treat us uh, as if we're we're five years old and need to be uh, need to be told what to do and how to do it. But, well, and also but a and lot also of want to portray us that way as well, so so that they can well, get more money. At, yeah, look at it, there is an organization that you hear advertise all the time. And uh, and they obviously spend a ton of money, and they talk about help the blind, uh, send us oh, money, donate your car. We even I'm not mentioning the name. Uh, well, go but, ahead, but go ahead. But they, mention the name. Well, Heritage for the Blind. Damn right. And 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 the reality is that 
they live off of that medical model. They they portray us in a way that that will pull at the the heartstrings of people with money, and and as long as organizations such as that one and others, they're not the only one, but they're the most prominent. As long as organizations like that exist and and uh, bring in money, and they obviously do because advertising ain't cheap. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be a very significant challenge for us to overcome those those notions that the sighted public has about blind folks. Yes, absolutely. So ten years ago. Um, <clears throat> and and longer and and certainly when you were president, there were a lot of us who were trying to um, persuade that organization not to yes, not sir. to be able to operate anymore. Um, and 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 for good reason, one would go to their website, and and one would click on any of the things they were supposed to be doing for blind people, and their webpage would say "page not found." It's it was dreadful. <laughs> Um, well, I think there was an effort around 2010 or 11. Yeah. Uh, some of the folks in the New York affiliate, right, um, were were trying to get their attorney general to take some action, and I I, I don't know. Uh, obviously, they weren't successful because because Heritage is based out of New York. Um, well, but it didn't happen. It's it's and it's. It's it's more interesting now. So uh, I decided uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I kept hearing their ads because they, they've they've recently had a new lease on life. They've suddenly kind of come back. Yes. <clears throat> so I went to their website, and now what they what they do is they is they they offer books for the blind. So you can go on their site and you can download books for blind people, but you can't read the titles if you're blind. So I said, I don't care. I'm going to download a book. I'm going to see what these guys have <laughs> available for me. So I downloaded this book and I've got to tell you, you guys, this was a, a, an amazingly exciting book. It was a book published by the Department of Agriculture about potassium. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't you know that too much potassium in in your diet can be uh, is dangerous. So they were doing, yeah, they were doing they were doing you a favor by, by cueing you in, cluing you in on on the dangers of potassium. I guess. I gotta tell you, I read that book from cover to cover. <laughs> The problem, Paul, is that you are now on their mailing list. Uh, you know, uh, maybe so. You're, you're now going. You're gonna. You're going to get uh, four to, to six times a year. You're going to get. Uh, wait till Giving Tuesday in uh, in November. Huh, there you go. <clears throat> but I think that. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the truth is we're not. We're, we're not finished what we were trying to do tonight, and I'm not sure we're going to get it done because we really are actually to the point where where um, where the two organizations split, and we haven't really talked seriously uh, about a lot of the stuff that happened after that. And I think so. I'm I'm not sure um, 
I'm not sure, but what we may not even have enough to just continue doing this next week. What do you think, Brian, Mitch? What do you think? Oh, I think I think that that this is a two-parter because <laughs> yeah, we we could talk more. You can talk more. I'm just oh, being a looper. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think I think what has happened. What what I touched upon earlier that advocacy now is different from advocacy in the 70s uh, when i when i got involved and into the 80s and and we do run i think a real risk of our advocacy efforts um you know just sort of disappearing one of the issues that you know you can certainly talk about next week and uh, this is going to be controversial, but I'm uh, and I, ACB has been involved in coalitions for decades. I am very yep. concerned about subverting our specific needs, as both of you have touched on. That being blind is very different than other disabilities, mm-hmm. but I am very concerned about about subverting our specific needs into the broader disability advocacy coalition movement and i think that if if you choose to have this discussion next week the 60s and beyond i think it's i think it's a topic that will engender a lot of pros and cons and 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 comment back and forth if you choose to do that why don't you join us next week because i because i think um i think coalitions have played an interesting role um for uh for for ACB certainly, and, and we also have uh, uh, one of the things we have the joy of talking about, and I think we should, um, is uh, the National Accreditation Council. I can join you for about the first hour and a half. It's nice. uh, ironically, it's our it's our Tuesday evening or our, uh, our third meeting? Tuesday Lions meeting. Yes, I saw <laughs> yes. that coming. Yes. Um, that, I think so I can I can stay until we should be doing. Yeah, I could stay on until about uh, about five thirty, uh, my time. Very and excellent. Be happy to so, do it. so plan on it. So talk to me. Talk to me a little bit more about what you think some of the real, um, some of the real accomplishments that I may have missed between forty and sixty that that. Uh, that the NFB managed did, did 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 I miss anything? Um, I'm trying to remember my 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 ancient history, but but um, I think there was an issue that the federation pushed about the right to organize. There was, uh, there was and 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 I think uh, yeah, I think that's where the beginnings of the movement. Um, to organize blind people at some of the workshops uh, yep. that took place. Um, I think that um, well, and the right to know, the right to organize was fascinating too because <clears throat> when it was originally when it when it when it originally became an issue, it didn't have to do with workshops. It had to do with the fact that a lot of unions wouldn't let blind people in. Yes, 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 um, um, and. And and it's and and that was significant, and it was also significant that that blind people essentially said that's not okay. Um, we we're we're workers just like you are. 
Um, whereas most of the unions perceived that that blind people were given special advantages um, by their employers and 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 didn't deserve to be part of collective bargaining. Well, and 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 of course, even today, um, some of the unions, when there's an ADA issue, uh, they they're they're not real uh, into. No. Helping, oh, yeah, no supporting the, yeah, so, but there was, there was that issue. I think in some of the individual states uh, during the 50s, some of those, and, and absolutely the Lions were very heavily involved, but, but I think that a lot of the local and state blindness organizations uh, within NFB uh, did push for white cane laws. Uh, California's came in, and, I, and I'm trying to remember, I think it was something like 63 or 64, which is after, after the split. But I, I suspect a lot of states uh, enacted white cane laws during the 50s. And, oh, they were and, a lot, some were a lot before that. Florida's was, uh, was in the 40s. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think it was, uh, I think it was Michigan goes back to the forties. Again, I'm, yes. I'm trying to remember. The first uh, was Illinois document. Yeah. Illinois, Illinois, not Michigan. That's right. That's yes. right. That's right. So, you know, and, and, you know, and then beyond that, when you get into the seventies, um, I was involved in, in fighting to get the County of Los Angeles and ultimately, ultimately the state, uh, the state beat us on that, allowing blind people even to have the chance to serve on juries. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I was involved in, in a lawsuit that was filed in 70, 73 or 74, and concomitant with that, the state, someone introduced legislation to allow us at least to get as far as Wadur questioning because right. um, prior to that, we were just automatically excluded. I was. Uh, yep. And the, the legislation passed and got signed before, uh, before the lawsuit came to trial, so it made it moot. But, you know, those mm -hmm. kinds of things happened in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, even before uh, the Rehab Act. Yes. So yeah. I think yeah. you've got a lot to talk about next week. I've, I've always oh. attributed that to the Federation. One of the things the Federation achieved was this concept of the right to serve on the jury. Yeah, Brian, when, when I was in the Federation when, when the lawsuit was filed and the Federation, NFBC here, uh, took up that cudgel, uh, yep. I was not high enough in, in, in the, anywhere in, in NFBC at the time to be one of those who, who went to Sacramento and, and, and spoke about it, but but uh, the NFBC certainly was uh, was very heavily involved uh, in in promoting that and, and seeing that it got signed by I think it was Ronald Reagan actually who signed it I think it was during his administration in '73. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, I think I I think we we have lots to talk about then. Um, and I think, you know, I think the the other thing we can certainly spend some time talking about next week is the degree to which the, the independent living movement um, affected what we were doing and the degree to, to which um, 
one of the one of the few things that I have a real problem with the Federation over the degree to which the Federation's uh, decision to regard the Americans with disabilities act as a bad thing. Um, yeah. Im- impacted impacted uh, what we got out of the ada uh, and and i think Absolutely. it had a pretty substantial effect so uh, i think that's what uh, yeah they delayed it for they delayed its its signing for months yes yeah um, I, I so, will i will i will pass along one anecdote as you're talking about the federation mm-hmm. um i went to when American Foundation for the Blind was alive and well in New York City, we had a World Blind, Blind Union regional meeting there. Mm-hmm. And at their museum is the letter. Helen Keller not only spoke to Lyons about being Knights of the Blind, she wrote a, a letter. And that letter was on display. I assume it's now in, in, in Louisville at APH. But that letter was read to me by none other than Mary Ellen Jernigan. Yep. She said, Mitch, you're a line. Nice. Would you like to he- would you like to hear the letter? I'll read it to you. Oh, I thought that was nice. pretty cool. <clears throat> yeah, I think so. I think that um I, I I think that the truth is that Left if if the separation hadn't happened, the 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 areas that the, that the National Federation of the Blind and the American Council of the Blind have been interested in, and 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 truly have worked on, have have essentially, I, I would say, in in ninety percent of the cases, been the same. Um. But, I but, think I, I would only disagree in that it's only been in the last few years that the NFB has become accepting of some of the accommodations, some of the things that ACB has been fighting for <laughs> since the outset, right. um, things such as audio description, uh, things like accessible pedestrian signals, there was a time when they opposed those things. I went up to Portland, Oregon, to an access board meeting um, sometime in the early 2000s, and I spoke in favor of APSs, and the Federation was there and spoke very stirringly very very strongly against them and how they currency and yet that's absolutely right accessible currency so you know they're they're coming around grudgingly but it it hasn't been more than and perhaps it has to do with the the new administration or not so new now with president riccobono but but they've they've really only come around my view the last five five seven years on on those kinds of things and i think we need to explore um what what the motivation um for the differences were um uh, i'm not sure that the motivation for the differences were actually policy issues but but instead i think that there was a need that the federation perceived that it had um to 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 demonstrate how different it was 
from ACB. And um, I, so they made an effort. I, I to do believe. That. Yeah, I believe, Paul, and, and, you know, I was in the Federation up until 78, but what I remember was that there, and, and you know, I had friends, people I, I spoke with in the Federation beyond that, but I sure. believe that their opposition was because they felt that APSs and 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 they've said even more recently accessible currency things of that nature take away from the image of blind people that they are trying to foster they yeah. see these I, things as negatives not as positives yeah yeah we, we can we we will certainly spend some time talking about that <clears throat> do we have any hands miss marianne we do um, I'll I'll jump off and I will uh, I'll be happy to join you uh, next see, uh, we'll next Tuesday at least for an hour and a half. Very good, Sounds sir. Good. Thanks. Take care. Yep. Yep. We have Teresa. You were talking about the uh, schools for the blind a little while ago, and what mm -hmm. sadly I noticed um, in the uh, mid to late seventies and on into the eighties and more, you know, even since then, that, you know, the standards of um, the expectations of education um, by uh, from blind children have, um, sadly, they've, I've seen them decrease because of the um, influx of uh, children where blindness is not their only disability. They have other issues, behavioral or um, cognitive, cognitive issues. Yep. We're going to talk about that a lot more next week, because um, okay. I because I because I think you're correct, um, and and yeah. I think it's it it's one of the it's one of the issues that has fundamentally changed the way that schools for the blind operate. So I think you're right. Yes, and um, and I thought it was very interesting, Paul, what you said, you know, about um, a lot of the um, low birth weight babies um, who were born prematurely ended up, you know. From fam mothers of upper middle class families, you know, if they were born in hospitals versus yep. uh, you know, poorer families. Yep. And then yeah, speaking of families, though, um, I I agree with you and Brian and Mitch that you can't go one extreme to the other because if some people were left up to only their families, they'd probably lose out. Yep. Yeah, I don't, Good point. I don't doubt that for a moment. I think also, however, on that issue, if you talk to some of the most successful blind people out there, you'll find that their yeah. families were absolute champions for them right. getting oh, the yeah, services they needed from government. Not so much that they provided right. it, but that they championed yeah. getting government to provide what government should oh, provide. I don't, I don't think government right. would be providing nearly as much had it not been for the involvement particularly of of all of those rlf babies parents right you know, I, I think gotcha yeah <clears throat> yep miss Teresa. thank you so much well thank you and i i better go take an incoming that i ignored because i was talking to you all <laughs> <laughs> there you go take care now. Marianne. we have one more hand yep. thank you, um, harvey 
about the blindness uh, history and uh, education tonight. And I was wondering if there is a book about such. And well, you know, there is there's certainly the, the, the ACB history that covers some of that. I'm a um, I, I actually quite like uh, a book that was uh, written by a lady whose last name is Kessler, and it's called The Unseen Minority, and it's available on Bard. And, and um, I, think, I think that gives a, a kind of a good overview. Brian, do you have another one you'd like to recommend? Well, I, I, again, I would recommend that book and ACV's history as published by ACB and right. NFB's history as published by NFB. And, and that's, I, I guess that would be walking alone, marching together. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, all of those, all of those are certainly worth, worth taking a look at, but I think, I think all of them, and please note, I said all of them need to be taken with a grain of salt. I, I, I think they all have, they 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 all have their strengths and weaknesses and it's it's only by putting all of them together that i think you get a picture of of uh some of the history exactly i i really do think that <clears throat> history is written by the victor and in this particular case um so much of what is included in these books is what really tells is what's not included in them. Right. And I, I also think that every generation writes their own history. So yeah. the, the history of, of, of blindness in that's, that's being written in 2023 is very different from what a history of blindness would have been written in, in say 1990 or 1980 when, when, when these books were published. Yes. And so, you know, I think one of the realities is that that what we are saying now would never have been said um, twenty or or thirty years ago, um, and and I think that 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 makes what we're saying more valuable because at least at the moment there there isn't a book that that puts all of that history together that yes. that I know about. No, well, I did a lot of. Uh, reading about the time of Louis Braille, and uh, it was sort of interesting to see how the school was set up in Paris. Yes. And that in, uh, when I started at the School for the Blind in Raleigh in uh, 1944, the school was set up exactly the same way with uh, a broad education in uh, industrial arts as well as music and as well as the, uh, I guess you would say, the academic side. Excellent. And, and I'm going to have to cut you off because we're out of time, but join us next week and talk to us about some of this stuff. In the meantime, thanks very much for being here, and we'll continue this next week. Good night.